Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick, of the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And I'm Julia, also of the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 28, which begins with talk of men's fashion, and it ends with Hans flexing his literary muscle. So, we start off this minute with Hans and Mr. Takagi. They are riding in an elevator up to the executive suite and Hans is kind of singing to himself the ode to joy and he looks over to Mr. Takagi and he says ah nice suit John Phillips London I have two myself and what I like about this scene is when he mentions John Phillips London Mr. Takagi's head like that has been looking straight ahead whips over to look at Hans as if to say how do you know where I buy my suits? And he knows where he buys his suits because Hans has two of his own. Yeah, our, I guess in the world of, you know, handmade fashion, especially in suits, when that's your thing, you can like tell who made a suit just by looking at it? I guess so. I tried to find literally any information about John Phillips in London. And unfortunately, every search that I made brought me back to this quote. Which kind of tells me... I hate when that happens. It kind of tells me that John Phillips London was a tailor, probably on London's Savile Row, was a tailor that rich people would go to to get their suits made and is now just not there anymore. Like they have retired or moved on or that name has passed out of use. But at the time, for 1988... That would have been a name that people would recognize as a hoity-toity, high-end suit maker from London. And I find it interesting that Hans and Mr. Takagi have the same taste in suits. And the question is, do they actually have the same taste in suits? Or is this just Hans needling Takagi? Kind of making Takagi think, okay, maybe this guy is on my level. Because he's the president of an entire corporation part of an investment group like he is an important powerful person and this nobody comes into his party starts shooting guns and terrorizing his party guests and now there are all these things that you know maybe they're not so different like they have the same taste in suits I think it's an attempt by Hans to try and level the playing field between him and Takagi. It's interesting that you say that because I got the exact opposite impression. Really? I saw this scene, the elevator scene as a whole, from the Ode to Joy to the suits as genuinely just making small talk. Really? Yes. He, Gruber is one of those guys in the elevator that you don't make eye contact with because they want to chat. And and I'm one of those people who does not want to chat in such close quarters. Like this this elevator ride, this is my nightmare. Mm-hmm. I mean, ignoring the fact that there's a giant German dude with a gun right. held up to the back of Takagi's head, the fact that someone else in the elevator wants to chit chat insists on talking to me. Yes, that's <laughs> awful. Uh, yeah, I got the sense that he was genuinely just talking. Like, he noticed the suit, so he said something. Yeah. What really changes it for me is the fact that Hans says, I have two myself. And then as they're walking out of the elevator, he says, rumor has it, Arafat buys his there. And Arafat is, he's a divisive figure, (laughs) to put it easily. 
So uh, do you have available like a very mini biography? So he is, he was a Palestinian political leader. He was chairman of the Palestinian Liberation Organization from 1969 to 2004 and president of the Palestinian National Authority from 1994 to 2004. He's ideologically an Arab nationalist, uh, the founding member of the Fatah political party, which he led from 1959 until 2004 and the reason he is so controversial is because muslims and palestinians view him as a heroic freedom fighter and a martyr for their cause he died in 2004 by the way whereas israelis and the allies of israel as a country see him as you know essentially a terrorist interesting i it's interesting that you use the word terrorist because I am very interested in using the word terrorist to describe this group of people, mm-hmm. which I don't think they would use the word terrorist to describe themselves. And Arafat wouldn't use the word terrorist to describe himself. No, of course not. So that's definitely something that Arafat and Gruber have in common. The difference, this this dramatic difference on how they see themselves versus how the world sees them. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's another example of the idea that I mentioned earlier. The idea that Gruber is trying to convince Takagi or show Takagi that despite his station in this capitalist system, the fact that he is so economically powerful, that really he's not that different from himself or Arafat. I found an article that got a little cerebral with this idea that Hans is... You know, this person that's come in to tear down the capitalist system, to punish the big corporation. And the idea that he would say, you know, I have two of those suits myself and Arafat buys his there is explored in this article. It's from New Republic and it's written by Ryu Speith. And they said that the inimical subtext of what Takagi's wealth and luxurious lifestyle amount to nothing in the face of death is undoubtedly true the brilliance of this line is to throw in arafat whose function here is to be a symbol of terrorism as if to say your world view is just as empty as mine the idea that your power and your wealth are nothing in the face of you know true power which is represented by gruber and arafat these men that use violence to get their aims as opposed to economic functions. Yes, and once again, I am struck by Gruber's misunderstanding of power. He he sees he sees Takagi's power as as empty as I mean they're just suits. Mm. But we don't know. Like we've said, we've said before, we don't know a lot about Nagatomi um, as a company and what they do and how they do it. But they produce things Mm -hmm. they build things they employ people yep and yes they participate very heavily in this capitalist society that some people see as a good thing and some people see as a bad thing but they are participating in a very material way in support of society as a whole a gruber who thinks he has power how is he participating in society Mm. he's 
not. He's the empty one. And I've said the exact same thing before, but... Yeah. I don't think he has a misunderstanding of power. I think he has a partial understanding of power. Yes, he understands his own power, but he doesn't understand how other people have different power. Exactly. You know, we talk so much about his philosophy. I'm still not convinced that he necessarily has, you know, the terrorist mindset of I want to tear down capitalism. I kind of feel like it's all an act. I think the fact that he has two of these suits that are very posh, handmade, hand hand tailored. He is participating in the capitalist process. Yeah. But he's there to tear it down. Yeah, I think he's, he, I think he's I, just putting on an act. Yeah. I, I agree. I think he's just saying things that don't mean anything to him. Yeah, I feel like we get so wrapped up in this persona that he's presenting to Mr. Takagi that we forget that I don't think he's actually the kind of person that subscribes to that ideology i think he's just kind of putting it out there right which leads me to wonder why is he there i mean we're gonna find out before the week is out yes for sure but i don't know it's it's just interesting the way he's he's toying with takagi here yeah so they exit the elevator and they walk off and we cut back to john this is our second instance of seeing him this week glad to see him again so he's popped his head through the door to floor 35 and we see a bunch of dudes coming out of an elevator and they're pushing a cart that is full of these giant boxes and we get a nice zoom in on the fact that these are missiles these are surface-to-air guided missiles that, for some reason, they brought along with them. It's not clear to us at this point why they have such heavy ordnance. And it's crazy to think that they do. Does this count as a Chekhov's gun? I think so. I think so. Yeah, you have... This is the introduction, and then and then we need to be reminded of them, and then we see them used. Yep. Chekhov's gun, I think the rule is if you show a gun in the first act, it has to fire by the end of the third. I believe so. Which, I granted, the end of the third act is the end of the play, but that's beside the point. So... I can't see too much of the side of the box, and I actually went on the Internet Movie Firearms database because I was hoping to find some information about these missiles, and the Internet Movie Firearms database was not very helpful. They just kind of called it, you know, custom-made rocket launcher Mm -hmm. and left it at that, and... To that, I say, um, actually, rockets are (laughs) self-propelled, but missiles are self-propelled and precision-guided, and these boxes very clearly say missiles, and so they're a little bit more, uh, ah, the word fell out of my head, a little more... Precise? No, that's not the word I was saying. I almost used precise. No, the word I'm looking for is um, a little more... Expensive? Skip it. (laughs) Okay. You'll think of it later. Just yell it out and you can edit it back into its correct place. Yeah. Missiles are better than rockets is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm hoping that someone down the line, once we get a better view of the boxes, will be able to completely uncover what kind of missiles we're dealing with and cast some light on that situation. Yes. Plenty of opportunity. When they showed the missiles, it just visually reminded me of the movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, in the climax scene, there are like the exact same boxes, like army green boxes with yellowish stencil writing on mm. them. It's very like classic military surplus, mm-hmm. you know, high weaponry. 
True so, Lies is such a good it movie. It is such a good movie. Came out in 1994, six years after this. Oh, man, that's such a good movie. I say, you want to talk about interesting uses of missiles in a movie. They don't get more interesting than that final confrontation of True Lies when you've got the, the lead terrorist. He slides down the wing and gets hooked on the missile. And then Arnold he Schwarzenegger goes through a building, right? launches him into his buddies. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Such a good movie. So I don't think I have anything else about the missiles. So from floor 35, we go up to the executive suite where Hans is walking through this giant executive office and it kind of looks like a museum. There are artifacts up against the walls. There are like models of Nakatomi investment group properties Mm -hmm. all around the room. The first one we walk by is an oil refinery. And of course, it's really easy for us to recognize oil refineries because they are prominently featured in the Mad Max series. Yes. If you can find an oil refinery, you are set for life. And so when people find them, they latch on to them and, you know, hijinks ensue. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's what you call it, hijinks? Yeah, that's a really reductive way to describe Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. People find an oil refinery and hijinks ensue. (laughs) The next model that he passes by is an offshore drilling rig. And so this really tells me that a lot of the Nakatomi Corporation's operations are oil-based. Yes. And I mean, that's where money is. So that makes sense. Especially in the 80s. I mean, and yeah, it's so much true today yes. for sure but the last model we walk up to is actually a model of the nakatomi building that they are all standing inside and i don't know that that seems a little funny you'd have a, a model of the building that you're standing inside i mean it makes sense i mean if they're going to celebrate their construction projects in other parts of the world i mean why not this one as a it is a nice looking building yes is very nice this room made me think of playing the sims Uh Uh-huh. Because in The Sims, it's easiest to play when you have big rooms. Right. The Sims get caught on everything. So you just give them plenty of room. But then you end up with these big open rooms that have little to no personality. So if this office were a Sim office... They have filled in the empty space with these models. I say it's an interesting design for a space to basically have someone visiting your office come off the elevator and more or less have to walk through a museum of your accomplishments yeah. on their way to your office. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it's museum-like, but it's not a public space. Right. It's a private space. It's like, oh, you want to come see me? Well, first you've got to see all of the things that my company has done. Not even, I mean, I would assume most of the employees can't even just walk up there. Right. Not without an appointment. (laughs) Right. It is by invitation, by appointment only. Mm. And I kind of like that Hans recognizes what they're doing here because he launches into his quote, and when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. And then he turns back to Takagi and he's like benefits of a classical education, you know, as if to brush off his shoulder or something like that. And I mean, he's calling him out. There's, there's, Nothing more to say about why he said that type of thing in this instance, except to say, oh, well, you know, look at you, Mr. Fancy Pants, with your pants all fancy from London. Yeah. You know, you've conquered the whole world. So what do you do now? And I think it's another little dig at Takagi because we know that Takagi has a ton of education. And so 
the fact that Hans Gruber is waxing all poetic in a classical style, you know, it's another one that, hey, you're classically educated, I'm classically educated too, you know, we're on the same level, you and I. Yeah, kind of see it like, so we're on the same level, but I'm poo-pooing your accomplishment. I'm poo-pooing your company. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up an aspect of Gruber that kind of delighted me Mm -hmm. and draw a comparison to alan rickman's character in robin hood prince of thieves gotcha the the sheriff of nottingham very very clearly both of the characters are very clearly villains and they're really good at being villains but they have these personalities that draw you to them that that while they don't make the character sympathetic because they're just too good at being villains Mm -hmm. you enjoy watching them work and it, yeah, Gruber in the scene, the elevator specifically, and then walking through this museum of an office, he's delightful. Mm. And he's fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, take away the context of the armed underlings and the menace of him taking everybody in the party hostage, and he would be delightful to have around because he does have that refined air about him. Mm-hmm. Like, he knows how to charm people yes but you know then you throw in the fact that you know he (laughs) used a bunch of machine guns and dudes to take over a party and he essentially kidnapped the president to whisk him up to his executive suite it's uh, a little it's more than a little menacing yes (laughs) Um, so i was a little interested about this quote and i feel like a lot of people are familiar with it because of this movie because Hans Gruber uses it in this context and it's just shared and snowballed from there and it's a lovely little thing um, but it's not as classical as you would necessarily believe it's not something that came out of a textbook or anything like that because the actual quote is a little more nuanced than that um, it kind of is an amalgamation of Plutarch as mentioning the classical educations and a little bit of John Calvin the uh, Protestant reformatist, you know, they both said things about this that kind of got mashed together that Hans is regurgitating here. So the original, you know, when Alexander saw that there were no more worlds to conquer, he wept. The original Plutarch is when Alexander was told that there were more worlds. He wept mainly because he spent his entire life conquering and when he heard that there were more worlds out there he lamented the fact that you know he could only join this one little bit so it's like exactly the opposite exactly the the quote's been like twisted and moved around and whatnot um when john calvin was talking about it he he says that it was more like Alexander heard that there were other worlds and wept because he had not co- completely conquered his own. So it's a bit more cosmic type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's been pushed around and reinterpreted and moved around so many times that it's not 100% on par completely correct. So this iteration of the quote, is it is it from Hans Gruber? Did he start this iteration of the quote? I think that's pretty safe to say. So I think it's um, proliferation in popular culture is because of Hans Gruber. Because of Hans Gruber. Now, I have a confession. I had never seen Die Hard before watching it to review it minute by minute. But I knew this quote and I never knew. I had no idea that I knew this quote because of this movie that I had never seen before. Cultural osmosis. Yes. I think my favorite instance of someone making a reference to this line is from the TV show Community. 
there is a later <laughs> seasons episode where the dean gets a vr machine and he puts on his headset and he jumps in this little cradle thing and he's running around and he incorrectly states that jesus wept for there were no more worlds to conquer <laughs> that's and great he obnoxiously keeps using the phrase Jesus wept. <laughs> and it is to the constant annoyance of everybody around him that he cannot say it right. I think it's my favorite instance of, of this sort of thing. Aside from this movie, of course. You've got to yeah. love the original. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so if you have no more worlds to conquer and would like to hear more from us you can find the mad max minute podcast on our homepage at madmaxminute.com you can follow us on twitter at mad max minute and join our facebook group mad max minute beyond microphone the diehard minute podcast is a collaboration of movies by minute podcasters find out more about the movies by minute format at moviesbyminutes.com diehard minute is produced by jim o'kane our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo, and at DieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time, nice suit. Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5.